Hello, and welcome to the Engineers Collective, the podcast by New Civil Engineer. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button and share this podcast with your colleagues. It's free to download on all podcast sites, or you can listen at newcivilengineer.com forward slash podcast. The Engineers Collective is powered by Bentley Systems. Around the world, engineers and architects, constructors and owner-operators are using Bentley software solutions to accelerate project delivery and improve asset performance for the infrastructure that sustains our economy and our environment. Together, we are Advancing Infrastructure. Welcome to the latest episode of the Engineers Collective. I'm Nadine Badu, Features Editor for New Civil Engineer, and today I'm joined by our News Editor, Rob Horgan. Hi, Rob. Hi Nadine. So today we're discussing quite a few projects that are facing some real challenges, particularly when it comes to cost. At the top of the agenda are the plans to repair Hammersmith Bridge, which remains closed to pedestrians and traffic. Yeah, Hammersmith Bridge is a a good place to start if we're we're talking about project cost constraints. Um, I'm sure many of our our listeners will have been keeping a close eye on the ongoing Hammersmith Bridge saga. Um, It's finally become national news and after Boris Johnson was warned that it could crumble into the Thames. At any moment, the government has taken some sort of action and set up a task force to decide the bridge's future. I've actually just been reading that the Transport for London, or former Transport for London officer in charge of roads around the Olympic Stadium and the Olympic Games has been brought in to to turn that around as well now. Um, But of course, regular readers of NCE and listeners in that part of London will, will of course know that the problems with Hammersmith Bridge are nothing new. It's been closed to vehicles for around 18 months, and even before then it was subject to speed and weight restrictions for longer than any of us cares to remember. Uh, the main issue is, of course, as you, as you mentioned earlier, money. Um, Hammersmith and Fulham Council put the cost of repairs between £141 million and £163 million, while the price tag to stabilise the bridge alone, uh, just so that it doesn't fall down, is £46 million. And of course, no council in this country has that type of money or in, in any country, I don't think. Um, however, uh, my gripe and, and the gripe of local MPs and central government has, has not been so much about the projected cost, but about, about any lack of detail about what actually needs doing to the bridge. Um, we obviously know there's, there's problems with the cast iron structure and problems with the pedestals but beyond that it's been it's been quite hard to tie down what what is actually wrong with the bridge I know I know you've had some issues with that yourself Nadine. Yep I have I've actually been trying to get a response from Hammersmith and Fulham Council for weeks now in terms of the emergency collapse strategy for the structure as well as a detailed overview of the engineering but unfortunately I'm still waiting so if anyone from the council is currently listening get back to me guys please. Yeah, there does seem to be an enormous amount of secrecy around around the repair plan. And that seems to have been the case ever since it was shut to vehicles around 18 months ago. I, I've repeatedly asked for, for copies of reports. I've put FIYs in. I've had them all kicked back, the latest of which was simply to find out how much has been spent on maintenance for the last 10 years, which seems a, a, a relatively straightforward task to ask but that's been denied sometimes on the grounds of national security sometimes on the on the grounds that it would take too long to gather the information which is of course within a council's right to do so but obviously is also my my right to challenge that um, decision so hopefully hopefully fingers crossed we'll get a bit more detail about what actually needs to be done what actually is wrong and um, fear not listeners we're trying our best (laughs) 
Exactly. I mean, while Hammersmith and Fulham Council have been pretty difficult to pin down on some of those important details, it's fair to say that it's not just local government facing funding issues at the moment. It's also a major issue for Transport for London. Now, negotiations between TfL and the government are set to come to a head as this podcast actually goes live. So while we don't have the details as yet, we'll be watching closely to see what deal is actually reached. And however, I mean, we do know for sure that in light of the recent changes to government guidance on in response to the pandemic, working from home is again being encouraged wherever possible. Now, while that is absolutely understandable, um, considering the rising infection rates, it will definitely prolong the financial impact for TfL as passenger numbers are unlikely to recover for the foreseeable future. Yes, not only adds to the pressure on government to make a decision on funding for infrastructure across the country, not, not just with Transport for London. Um, we've heard in recent days that the budget has now been cancelled. I'm not sure what that means for the national infrastructure strategy that we were we were expecting to be to be revealed alongside the budget, and we've already waited for it so long, and it's been pushed back time and time again. Um, one thing the government has done is set up an acceleration unit. Um, however, as we all know, the terms acceleration and infrastructure are, re- are rarely heard in the same sentence. Um, and this government alone has delayed decisions on the Stonehenge Tunnel, Sizewell C, and it's drawn out negotiations over willful nuclear funding have dragged on so long that the developer has finally had enough and pulled out altogether. Um, that developer is Hitachi, of course, and uh, they waited over 18 months for the government to to come up with a new funding model before pulling the plug. And, and to be honest, who can blame them after that amount of time? I mean, it's a big, big, big decision. I mean, but what does that mean for the wider nuclear energy going forward? It feels like a massive blow, no? Yeah, correct. I I think it's a huge blow. We're talking about a £20 billion energy project, which only a couple of years ago looked like a done deal, looked like it was definitely going to go ahead. Um, It's a massive blow for the nuclear sector, but also for the Welsh construction sector and economy, which has seen a a number of energy projects scrapped in recent years, the, the tidal lagoon in Swansea being being a big one, of course, as well. A very different scheme, but still a big, big expensive project that eventually was was hit the buffers because of government stalling and government delays. But uh, it's, it's probably a sign of things to come in terms of the UK's energy priorities. Speaking to energy analysts and, and the general consensus is that government is not keen on nuclear anymore. Issues at Hinkley Point C and delays to pl- planning applications at Sizewell have of course dampened investor appetite and with the cost of renewables falling every year nuclear power is fast becoming an unattractive proposition. To be fair a lot of these challenges aren't kind of sector specific are they whether it's nuclear roads or aviation cost and efficiency challenges are really critical I feel like the seemingly never-ending debate around Heathrow is a perfect example. Yeah exactly Heathrow is the lingering infrastructure headache that, that won't be shifted uh, we thought we thought it was all full steam ahead when the government voted it through, but expansion plans have of course now been put on ice following the Court of Appeal's decision that expanding the airport was unlawful on environmental grounds. Uh, there could yet be another twist in that tale with the Supreme Court case due to be heard next month. So we wait to we wait to hear that. Um, but in the meantime, Heathrow has published its sunk costs in relation to expansion, and it has emerged that five hundred million pound has already been spent. That's £500 million on planning and enabling works alone. £500 million before planning permission was even secured. I mean, to me, that is an enormous amount of money to, to spend so early on in a project, um, which, which ultimately looks like it's going nowhere now. So rival bidders have, of course, said that 
this shows Heathrow is inefficient in its spending, but by way of comparison, Heathrow West has spent under £50 million on its expansion plan. That's 10 times less than Heathrow Airports. And Heathrow Hub has spent even less than that. Heathrow's efficiency has come under even more scrutiny recently with uh, following a review by the Civil Aviation Authority. The regulator concluded that Heathrow acted inefficiently on refurbishments of a cargo tunnel and road tunnel servicing its terminals. The report shows that the combined cost overruns on both schemes is estimated to be just over a whopping £212 Now, if that wasn't concerning enough, the regulator suggested that these costs could be even higher by the time the work is actually completed. Now, interestingly, NCE spoke to Darren Calderwood, who is Heathrow's Infrastructure and Programme Management Office Director. That was for our October issue. Um, He actually spoke about procurement for the scheme to refurbish the twin uh, bore cargo tunnels under the southern runway between Terminal 4 and the central terminal area. Now, procurement for the scheme is embracing a Project 13 model, which aims to move away from traditional transactional arrangements. Now, while there's not been an official response to the CAA's report as yet, I think it's safe to assume that Heathrow would disagree with the regulator's assessment that money has been wasted on the tunnel refurbishment. Yeah, it's certainly a, a busy time for regulators across the board and you wouldn't envy the job of the, the CAA of having to assess that level of spending and whether it's just or not. Absolutely. Especially with infrastructure projects, we all know costs go go up and uh, delays happen. Does that does that mean money's been wasted as they've ruled or does it just mean that, you know, these are the inevitability of our our sector? But uh, I think that's a perfect point to introduce our special guest this week um, and jumping from one regulator to another, if I can make such a crude segue. The Engineers Collective is powered by Bentley Systems. Joining us today is the Office of Rail and Roads' Steve Fletcher, a chartered civil engineer with 30 years experience in heavy civil engineering, loss adjusting and asset management with Lang Civil Engineering, an international loss adjuster company and network rail. That included three years in Saudi Arabia leading on the on the bringing into operation and management of all civil engineering and building assets for Saudi Railway Company. Now Deputy Director of the ORR, Leading Engineering and Programme Specialist within the Railway Planning and Performance Directorate, which is responsible for holding Network Rail to account for the delivery of its outputs and obligations set out in periodic reviews. Thanks for joining us on the show, Steve. Before we get into the nitty gritty, could you give us our could you give our listeners an overview of the ORR's role and how that fits in with Network Rail's plans in particular? Yeah, so so you just mentioned that uh, about the obligations to provide, which is actually to provide a safe and high performing railway, um, and Network Rail are the custodians of the infrastructure, uh, and our team particularly puts a great deal of effort into ensuring that um, the asset management policies that they've got provide uh, Network Rail the means to meet its obligations, which is to have a safe and high-performing railway. Now, for obvious reasons, there is a lot of talk around safety of railside earthworks at the moment. This was brought into the fore in August with the tragic Stonehaven derailment in which three people lost their lives. Now, Grant Shapps has now released the interim report into the crash, which confirmed that the, de- the derailment occurred after the train collided with debris, resulting from a ra- railside landslip. Now, of course, I know the ORR is currently involved in an active investigation at Stonehaven, so you are obviously unable to talk about that specifically. But looking at earthworks more generally, how how big is the challenge for Network Rail in terms of managing those assets? Um, well, I couldn't not mention uh, 
in the context of Stonehaven, the fact that the whole railway industry family is extremely sad, uh, the events that have taken the, uh, taken place there, um, it was a, a terrible incident, but we are working with RABE and Network Rail and we are um, investigating what's occurred and taking lessons from that and we will be holding Network Rail to account or whoever uh, on those findings and recommendations. But speaking more generally, um, it's a massive challenge and be- before this podcast I took the time to have a look at some figures and there's 20,000 miles of railway and of that there's something like 190,000 earthwork assets. So an earthwork asset is defined as something being in the order of a, an earthwork being in the order of a 100 metres, five chain lengths. So if you think 190,000, early 200,000 assets Within that 100 metres, there'll be lots and lots of drainage, lots and lots of vegetation. So you're looking at millions of things that um, can be deemed as an asset or that can act in a way that can bring risk to, to the specific assets. So it's a massive challenge. You know, you've got millions of things for Network Rail to be custodians over, to manage and to try and identify those areas of highest risk. Uh, and it's expected that there will be some failures if you think of the enormity of the asset profile. Um, and every year there can be between 75, 200 failures, um, the majority of which, a uh, significant majority of which, are managed extremely well by Network Rail. Like you say, it's, it's absolutely enormous um, network of earthworks to manage. Um, part of, of the interim report um, into the Stonehaven also also drew my attention to the age of some of them. Um, I think they said most of them are over 100 years old and, and they admitted they're not up to modern day standards but it's obviously an impossible task to renew the entire rail side earthwork network in the, in the country. So so how does Network Rail go about prioritising sort of what's most necessary to, to carry out? Yeah, so, so it's an interesting question that and the way it's put you might think, oh my God, We've not done, the industry has not done any work on the railway infrastructure since Victorian times. But of course, that's not true, is it? And there's been continuous work in maintenance for that whole 150 year period. Um, the demands on the infrastructure seem to uh, not seem, are increasing with increased passenger and freight. Um, but there is continuous renewal and maintenance, albeit, as you say, not always. Uh, a sufficient amount to make sure that everything is operating in a pristine can new condition um so yeah it's a difficult challenge so so how does network rail decide oh this section of earthworks needs upgrading yeah. more than that section how how does it yes so so network rail develop policies and they undertake inspections and there are formal inspections uh, by which data is collected and then what they do with that data is um, classify each of those 190,000 assets that I referred to earlier and deem those areas or identify those areas that they see as critical, whether it be critical in terms of safety or critical in terms of performance. In fact, their policies will be built of both factors, criticality and train performance requirements. And by developing their property, their policies, 
which they continuously review and we see control periods as a, a good sort of uh, beginning and end of a control period as a point at which uh, plan do review, have you heard that expression where you know you plan to do something at the beginning of a control period, you set your policies and then you implement those policies and then at the end of the control period you review back to see whether your policies work, take lessons and then review again and then set a new plan for the following control period. So Network Rail continuously inspect, continuously um, record data and use that information to prioritise with principles um, provided by the technical authority, which is based in the centre of Network Rail, and then those out in the regions on the front line um, adopt those policies and set their own priorities to manage the railway. And as I say, that would be based on whether something is uh, highly critical in terms of performance or a high safety risk. And with regards to earthworks, what is the role of the ORR to make sure that Network Rail is carrying out sufficient work, but also the right earthworks projects? Yeah, yeah, yeah. so we've got many roles. Um, so I'm part of the Economic Directorate, and our teams uh, are very interested in the asset management policies, how the data is managed and how that leads into setting guidelines for for those on the front line implementing work plans and maintenance. We're very interested in standards that have been adopted since Victorian times and refined to uh, adapt for modern techniques, new technologies, that sort of thing. But also the ORR has a safety inspectorate and that safety inspectorate is based out in the field and continuously, regardless of control periods, is out there inspecting what Network Rail are doing in the earthworks world. Well, what Network Rail are doing in all their assets and the whole infrastructure. Um, and people in our economic side undertake our own technical investigations, reviews, uh, and on occasion procure external experts to do a review of wherever Network Rail is undertaking. And then, of course, at control periods, um, Network Rail produce their revised policies which and work banks, which our teams then assess, challenge and validate as part of the control period review. It's a continuous process. So, so looking more broadly at the, the current control period and sort of taking a bit of a, uh, a back step from Earthworks, what, what are the major challenges facing Network Rail during this current control period? Um, how long have we got for this podcast? <laughs> Um, so, so Network Rail's um, in the second year of five years of the current control period, CP6, and it's had a really good start. Um, but of course, unexpectedly, COVID has come along uh, and Network Rail have done a sterling job. They've worked collaboratively with ourselves and with the industry to, to maintain the delivery of its maintenance and also its renewals. And the challenges for Network Rail is to keep that going. They've had a really good start in years one and two. Um, but there is a ramp up of work planned to be delivered in years three, four and five. So it's going to be an immense challenge and they can't be complacent because of a good start um, to keep that delivered in spite of COVID and all the other things that can affect the supply chain. Mm -hmm. 
when when you say it's been it's had a good start what what does that look like what does that translate to um so so that means uh, trying to bust the boom and bust profile that people lament about continuously um this year sorry not this year but at the beginning of uh, the end of CP5, the beginning of CP6, there was a huge effort to make sure that, you know, the work banks were developed and mature enough to be delivered at the beginning of year one. Day one, they needed to be delivering it, delivering their work and on the case, uh, as opposed to taking ages to ramp up. And then, you know, big panic towards the end. Um, and they've had a really good start in these first two years. So it was about developing more mature work banks to be clear what they needed to do and to have the supply chain ready to do it for them, which they've done it better this time than previously. And you've just touched on that kind of transition from CP5 to CP6. So, I mean, it's fair to say that there were some key les- lessons to be learned from CP5. So how have those lessons shaped the ORR's res- approach to Network Rail during this current control period? Yeah, so in CP5, there were, there were a number of things, uh, and particularly it was that one point um, about being ready and not starting from a dead start on day one of year one of the control period. Um, and, you know, each control period review takes three years and there was time to prepare. And, you know, we were taking lessons from CP5 uh, as it was occurring with a view of CP6. Uh, and efficiency is also, we've not mentioned efficiencies and cost. And of course, there's constant um, uh, complaints about how expensive the railway can be. Uh, and a lot of effort has gone in better than ever before. For Network Rail to be able to demonstrate its efficient delivery of work, where in CP5, you know, I don't think the frameworks were in place sufficiently well for them to demonstrate to everybody that they were actually doing work at the best cost, at the optimum cost, best value. And so a lot of effort was placed prior to CP6 to set that framework to monitor and control efficiency, which is what we do um, and hold them to account on. Um, and what and the frameworks they've set up have proven to be, to date, uh, reasonably successful. And I say to date, and again, you know, we just can't be complacent. Uh, and we, we have to, as an ORR, um, maintain our overview and, and holding to account. So you touched on COVID earlier being a sort of a massive unexpected uh, issue to plan for. Obviously, nobody across any sector could plan for. So, I mean, where, from where we're sitting, it, it, it seems almost impossible to predict how much money is going to be needed, you know, for five, six years time, um, which is effectively what happens with the control period funding pots. Um, so I was just wondering, are are they reviewed within that five, six year period? And do you think there needs to be certain parts of funding which is sort of looked at in, in the middle of the, the control periods? So that. yeah, so, so it's a very complex matter, isn't it? Determine how much money is required to deliver work over a contr- five year period and, and how can your uh, work bank plans be exacting five years out? It's really difficult, but you know, um, Year one, you've got pretty firm, solid plans and mature work banks ready to go because you've been working on them for a couple of years. Year two, reasonably mature. Year three, not bad. Year four, 
we've got more work to do on that year five well we think we're going to be doing it uh, and we're going to put this in in place for our delivery plan but of course as you've alluded to things change um, but what doesn't change is the policy and the parameters and the means to determine what is critical before something else to be delivered. And so you continually mature your work plan as you go. And there's sufficient flexibility within Network Rail and within our oversight to enable Network Rail to change control its work bank as the work bank matures and as the work is understood more so to be delivered. Uh, and that, that you know, with that governance and, and with contingency sums of money, because we always know that work will have to be undertaken that we're not aware of yet. I mean, that's just the nature of managing infrastructure. And I'm not even touched on whether resilience, climatic change and adaptation. You know, we are living in an infinite world of change. And so as long as the policies are right, as best can be, going back to my plan do review, within a control period, sufficient fluctuation is able is enabled, but actually you should, given the volume of work being delivered over a five-year plan, still reach your objective, which in CP6 is about sustainability of the asset and holding it at a, a level of condition and performance that it was in in the previous control period. So there is flex. And the skills of the asset manager in Network Rail and actually my team to overview what's going on it is to, to work within these parameters uh, and to make the right decisions best based on the policies that have been established and continuously learn. So you, you asked me about, you know, can, are they continually reviewed? Well, of course they are. And um, because you've got the governance in place, you can make those adjustments and still not compromise the, the overall big plan that you you set sail on if that's the right word and <laughs> just in terms of setting the funding pot for the control periods obviously that goes beyond just earthworks are there kind of any particular areas that are quite difficult to come to an agreed cost on well so if you're an earthworks engineer of course earthworks is the most important thing in the universe and you know what else is there but of course you've got king's cross station you've got uh 2,700 is it, stations in Great Britain. There's a lot of stations that need to be maintained. Part There are English heritage and Scottish heritage and Welsh heritage. Um, so they're extremely important and costly to uh, maintain, sustain for the future. So that goes back to the custodianship of network rail. They, they are custodians of everything. Um, and that's quite a mean feat to, to look after infrastructure of that nature. But then, of course, you've got your high technology signalling and we're moving into a new digital world with lots of pressures around that and obsolescence because old signalling equipment is, is no longer uh, the required means to control trains and it's the ERTMS, ETCS option that people are looking at now, which is not cheap. And we're in competition with Europe for the same suppliers that deliver the same high tech. So there are pressures there. And how could we forget track, which the trains run on every day, every minute of the day, uh, that need renewing, replacing and maintaining. 
um, with increased freight and passenger services, albeit not currently. Um, they too need to be maintained on the same 20,000 mile, miles of infrastructure with the various pressures there. And then you've got power, electricity and power. And the, the, the desire to move away from um, diesel and decarbonisation is very much at the forefront of our thoughts. So how can we move to a more electrified infrastructure? So there are issues there. And then, of course, there's telecoms and structures and bridges and viaducts. I mean, we've got a long... This, um, this podcast, it just isn't long enough to express the breadth and variety of investment that's required to maintain the railway infrastructure. It's just immense. So, so looking at CP6 in, in particular and, and looking at all those different funding streams you've just mentioned there, what, what's different or what's being invested more in this time round than last time round? Um, I haven't got the actual figures on by asset, by route or region before me, but if I, if I explain to you the, the means by which um, we consider how much is required or Network Rail considers how much is required... You have to think about each individual asset group and in that group the distribution of age of that particular asset. So we alluded to the fact that it's a Victorian railway. Well, it's not completely Victorian because we have been building on it during those hundred years. And so say in track, you'll have a distribution of age for throughout those 20,000 miles of railway. So through the natural cycle of life, asset life, um, depending on where you are in that cycle will depend how much money you need to spend on that particular asset. And of course, signaling, earthworks, track, operational property aren't all at the same distribution and aren't all at the same asset life period. So we're, we're looking into CP7 at the moment and we can see that there's going to be greater demand for signaling, for example. And so what we've got to do now is to balance what we understand is required as a result of the natural cycle of things and then bring in the criticality and the safety and then work out where best to trade off to get the best result for the taxpayer and and to enable the sustainability of the railway infrastructure as a whole. It's not just a straightforward, well, we didn't do that much last time, let's do a bit more next. It's very much driven by those policies that I referred to and I'm repeating on purpose plan do review because that's what we do but also it's very much driven by data and condition and age and it's how how you use the policies of maintenance and renewal to get the best out of those assets so you may have the option of extending life through heavy maintenance as opposed to just straight renewal and replacement. And it's balancing those things for all the different asset groups that Network Rail have to do and that we have to validate and, and test. It's not straightforward, well, we give you 20% less last time, so we'll give you 20% more this time. It just doesn't 
work that way. And just in terms of renewals and maintenance, I've actually got some figures in front of me here. And Network Rail is set to spend almost 17 billion on renewals and 7 billion on maintenance over the next control period alone. So, I mean, that is an incredible amount of money. Do you think that the focus on improving sustainability over the uh, across the existing network will continue to demand such huge sums in future control periods? The, there, there's going to be fluctuations because of the fact that I've just alluded to that you know there's going to be obsolescence, there's going to be a change in distribution of age and condition, but the order of magnitude will pretty much be the same, I would suggest. Um, and you, you, you mentioned improved sustainability. The challenge in itself is to keep degradation at bay and, uh, and meet the new challenges of uh, climatic change and the extreme events that we're having to sustain the railway at the level of performance that it's at now, never mind improved performance and the sustainability. Uh, and we're going to be working over the next three years with Network Rail in, in preparation, and DFT, in preparation for CP7 to sort of meet those particular challenges uh, uh, and will we be able to improve sustainability in terms of performance and condition? I don't know yet. Will we be uh, allowing a degradation in some areas? Well, we need to look and assess where the distribution is in each of the various asset groups. Um, and it's going to be hard work over the next three years, as it is every control period, by the way, in coming to a conclusion on how best to invest over the next control period. So so coming to those conclusions uh, of how best to invest, as you just said then, is it is it our network rails sort of vision for where it wants to spend the money and what yourself and the government think? I assume that isn't aligned from day one. So is that a back and forth? Um, is that a back and forth conversation or how how does that work with yourself What's your, and, and, and I, I would say, I would say um, back and forth seems a little bit confrontational and sort of, you know, at odds with each other. I mean, I'm sure we have moments like that now and again, but, you know, that's just how it is in being the conscience of Network Rail as a regulator, holding them to account against their delivery plans and making sure they're not, um, not making the wrong decisions uh, for the forthcoming control period. So it's an iterative process and it's a collaborative process. At times it can be challenging and that's how it should be. You know, if we are overly collaborative, we would all agree and probably make the wrong decisions. So, so Network Rail have a top-down approach, but they themselves go to the routes and the regions for a bottom-up application of those same policies and, of course, even within network rail, the top down will not be the same view as the people in the routes and regions on the front line making recommendations for their own work banks. And I guess there'll be tension. Well, I know there will. Having worked for network rail for 10 years, there is tension from the bottom up on the top down, and rightly so. And then they get to a position where they're content with their proposals and then share those with ourselves. And guess what? So we do a top-down and they're the bottom-up and we provide that tension and it's an iterative process. And, and between us, um, we believe that we, we'll come to the best outcome, the best solution. 
um, at the time. I mean, you mentioned there that there's generally a, a collaborative a- approach, but I assume that there is sometimes a discrepancy between what Network Rail wants to spend, what the government has to spend, and what you as the regulator believe needs to be spent. So how does that relationship between all three parties play out? We all have value, don't we? So, so the government have only got so much money in the purse. They say, this is our statement of funds available. Now, out of this statement of funds available... I want you to deliver this. So it might be a sustainable railway and increase this or a less of that, whatever it might be prescribe. Um, they, they may wish to um, embrace the challenges of decarbonisation in, in favour of other transport networks, which in itself may influence what the work banks will be and how network rail respond. But basically, the, you know, following advice from ourselves... And actually, discussions with Network Rail, the government determines a set of money available and this is what we want out of it. Network Rail respond to that in the way that I've said, by setting their policies, accounting for the requests as deemed in the uh, HLAS, high level output specification, and then they present that to us in their first draft. That's when we challenge, that's when we have people independently validate we are impartial that's the great strength of the regulator you know we're not bound to any one route or region or asset and we have this overview where we can be impartial non-political and be the conscience of network rail and challenge back and in cp5 we did that where we encouraged them to invest more heavily in earthworks for example uh, and and that's the role that we play and uh, and then we'll give them our response to their submission their draft submission for the control period um, and then the iterative process the policies may be refined and then they'll come back to us with their final plan and we'll satisfy ourselves and if not we'll we have the powers to influence further but we'll reach a point where there's a final determination which then results in what we know as the delivery plan of Network Rail, and we'll hold them to account over the next five years to deliver on that plan. And that's what we do, make sure that they are kept on track to deliver against the H loss um, as prescribed as part of the final determination of a control period review. And, and has that process evolved or, or changed over the years at all? So I'm going to go plan, do, review again. Um, so, so I mentioned about plan do review i've mentioned about data and i've mentioned about technologies uh, and capabilities of as a result of improved data of improved technologies network rail is so much better at forecasting and modeling made more difficult now by climatic change and these extreme events that become ever so more frequent it seems well not it seems it is a reality um But the core process of setting policies, reviewing what you set out to do in the previous control period, looking, did you actually land at at the point as you planned to in terms of condition and performance? Then assessing what the government requires and refining your policies to meet those requirements has been pretty consistent over many control periods. So the core process and the, and the requirements of an impartial body like ORR to be that conscience challenge uh, uh, and, uh, and put Network Rail on the hot seat, if you like, to get the best outcome, to have the correct tension, 
um, has always been there and will continue to, to, to be there. But what I will say is because of experience, improved data, we get better every time. Fundamentally, the process is pretty consistent and it has to be systematic and it must be evidence-based. Uh, and that's that's how we make the, our best decisions and, and it's a fundamental um, aspect of ORR's DNA, if you like. Uh, and our mantra is to, you know, to inform our decisions on de- on evidence, not on hearsay. Uh, and so, yeah, it's pretty much the same, but I would like to think that it's better every control period. And just in terms of that relationship, I mean, striking the balance between praising and holding Network Rail to account sounds particularly difficult, especially on issues such as health and safety. So how do you go about walking that line? Oh, God. I suppose, uh, so I mentioned about uh, Network Rail... I mentioned about ORR being the conscience of network rail. That might seem a little bit fluffy. But it's. It, I suppose another analogy would be like, uh, this seems arrogant, I don't want it to be, so I don't want it to come out uh, giving the wrong impression. But you love your kids, but you can give them a right telling off at times, can't you? So there's a huge respect that ORR has for network rail. You know, I've walked in their shoes, it's not an easy job. But at times we have to hold them to account and use different means. Health and safety, you know, the law is the law, there are legal requirements and our inspectors have a different lens on the infrastructure that we do as economists and asset managers. Similar lens, but slightly different. And they have powers, improvement notices, etc. that they enforce as a requirement of health and safety legislation. And that's just how it is. From an economic perspective, an asset management perspective, giving fines to network rail and taking money away from investing in the infrastructure seems a bit crazy and we just don't do that any anymore you know holding them to account through reputation and being open and transparent about what's going wrong and and making sure that they and us and the whole industry learn from things that have gone wrong is really important slapping a fine on someone doesn't really help anybody does it so it depends what lens you look through so t- talking about fines, as you've just brought it up there, um, last year the ORR announced that it would impose target- targeted financial sanctions for underperforming routes and operators. Just wondered if it had been necessary to impose any fines so far, and do you think the risk of fines has been a useful deterrent? Um, so we've, we've not applied any fines so far. I mean, that would be an extremely last resort, high, you know, very, very last resort, and... Uh, and uh, has it been a deterrent? Well, we've not had to apply a fine, so I'm not 100% sure whether it has or it hasn't. But what has been a, te- a deterrent to potentially some gross errors, maybe, is our continuous review and holding to account and our new policy for holding that we're out to account um, from an economic perspective. And we try and get in early and investigate. So, so <clears throat> now ORR don't work at the end of one control period. And then just before, sorry, don't work at the end of a new old control period and just before the beginning of a new, we're continuously working and holding that rail, network rail to account. And through our investigations and early engagement and reviews of what they do, we can avoid situations where fines can be slapped on 
And so just one last question before you go. If you had to pick one area that you think is going to be the biggest challenge for Network Rail and the kind of across the rail industry in general, what do you think that's going to be? Oh, just the one thing after mentioning (laughs) millions of things that we have to consider. But, but do you know, I think the principles are the same every control period. It's balancing all the challenges that they've got with all the asset streams and the funds available. And if I can be cheeky and mention climatic change, I think, you know, it's made even harder now with um, these inc- increasing frequencies of, of events. So the one thing is balancing everything in, in, the, in, in sight of the changing climate. So one and a half things, if that's all right. No, climate, climate change is a massive, massive uh, sort of challenge for the whole industry, not just rail, everyone in general. And we talk about it all the time on the Engineers Collective. So uh, yeah, 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 absolutely. But if you look at the frequencies, you know, you look at the frequencies of, of rain-related events and the number of landslips and the things that, you know, this is a serious issue that we all have to, to recognise. Mm-hmm. Almost, almost worth a podcast on its own. I think that issue before we before we start talking for another forty minutes. Um, so, uh, th- thanks for your time today, Steve. It's been um, very insightful to to hear the work the ORR does in relation to Network Rail, and um, we'll keep an eye on on developments as they continue over the months and, and years ahead. Thank you very much. You're welcome. This podcast is brought to you in association with Bentley Systems. With digital technology changing the way the world lives, it's time to apply digital technology on infrastructure projects to close the productivity gap with other industries. Bentley invites you to gauge your organization's progress by taking one of our going digital assessments. Work with a partner you can trust and accelerate your pace of possible by going digital with Bentley at bentley.com forward slash going hyphen digital hyphen rail.